Hey, hey, what's up, everybody? Welcome to Try Not to Blink, a podcast about the ups and downs, ins and outs, news, tips, and tricks of those who live the optometry lifestyle. We'd like to thank the amazing people at none other than Valley Contacts who've made this podcast possible. Of course, they are makers of stellar gas permeable contact lenses and the oh-so-incredible custom stable scleral lens. In case you're wondering, my name is Dr. James Jimmy Diem on the East Coast, and I'm joined by none other than the one, the only, Dr. Roya Habibi on the West Coast. Roya, what's happening? Buddy old pal, nothing good. Or everything good. It's June and summertime. Hallelujah. Halfway through the year. It's really hard to believe. Almost the summer solstice. (laughs) You and your astrology or astronomy (laughs) or, I don't know, lunar... uh, Brilliance? References. Yeah, brilliance. Sure. It's fine. Keep going. We'll go with that. (laughs) I mean, what can I say? In Seattle, the solstice is a big deal. Sun up, sun down. Do Do all the crazies come out and smoke their weed? No, that's all the time. That's not crazy. (laughs) I'm just kidding. (laughs) No, but in the summer, the sun doesn't go down in Seattle until about a little after 10 p.m. Comes up around 4.30, 4-ish. Oh, wow. It's pretty great. But you know what that also means? No, I don't. Cataracts. Oh, yes. The dreaded Cadillac. Cadillacs. Everyone around here has Cadillacs. It's crazy. Cadillac grills. <laughs> Cadillac spills. Spills. Ludacris. Right? Isn't that what, what you think? What? Yep. That's what I think. Um, but seriously, June, FYI, is Cataract Awareness Month, according to uh. Prevent Blindness Eye Health and Safety Observance Calendar. There's an eye month for everything. This is ridiculous. What Why is not? Trichiasis Month? That's what I want to know. Let's talk about real problems. Trickuary. <laughs> <I'm just kidding. laughs> nice try. That was good. That. Another thing that causes cataracts. How about Lodamax? <laughs> Whoa! <laughs> oh, BNL is going to be sending us hate mail. Not anymore Sorry, because it just went generic. Amen. You're welcome. Hey, yes. Hey, hey, acorn. Acorn. Yeah. Acorn. Not to be confused with acorn. <laughs> Exactly. I don't know. I'm going with the... I like it. I'm feeling it, too. Yeah. Um, they just got FDA approval for a lodopredinol etabonate ophthalmic suspension 0.5%. Hmm. Not in pharmacies yet, but coming soon, folks. There you go. So No more complaining on Facebook about, oh, Lodomax is too expensive, blah, blah, blah. Nectar of the gods. Yes, it's so good. Use it for everything. Use it for poison ivy. I'm Why not, not kidding you. Exactly. We talk about it all the time. Anyway. Yeah, exactly. Another thing happening in June is that the internet is watching us. I know that. I mean, I just think about, I mean, I'm sitting here, I'm in my uh, kitchen, I'm looking at bananas. I guarantee you, in five minutes, there's going to be a Facebook ad for a banana peeler. <laughs> I just know it. They hear me. I embrace it, to be you. honest. It's convenient. Say it again? It's really convenient, I feel, when the... Like, banana peelers? Well, when I talk about how I want to buy a new pair of shoes, and then all of a sudden, all these shoe ads are on my Instagram feed. I'm like, thank you. I don't even have now to Now listen, look for we this. have done a ton of podcasts about marketing and media and branding and all this kind of stuff. And I am trying and have tried to do 
Facebook ads and Instagram ads for my business. And I, I still find it difficult. Like I want to put in people that want an optometrist or even for this podcast, I want to put it in like optometrist, but you can't, in, in my experience, I have not found it to be that easy. So I just want to know, like, how do people like how to do it? How do you do that? Yeah. Or does it does it just take a ton of money to do it? Like you just have to think it does. But maybe one of our listeners knows we would love you to shout out or reach out or if it's anyone who wants to talk about this with us, that'd be grand. But sometimes sometimes, right, like you're you're there and and uh the ads are coming, you're like, Oh, it's because I did this, but it's not appropriate, right? Like you're like they're wasting their ad dollars trying to get me to buy this, right? Did you ever think that? Did you ever feel that? Maybe sometimes. Like this is a this is. But I'm gonna be honest. Dollars. I'm like the perfect target for an Instagram ad. I I buy off Instagram ads more than I'd like to admit. Seriously, I, I just bought some clothes off Instagram. <laughs> yeah, it's just so easy and convenient. Sure. Like I like yeah. when people target me. It makes my job easier. I don't like searching for stuff. Target target me i'm all about that anyways on that topic yes google's brilliance they just realized that they actually predicted a conjunctivitis outbreak or epidemic because so many people were searching for pink guy conjunctivities abound (laughs) i guess so Yes. Um, yeah, it's pretty interesting. So the Google Google search data for conjunctivitis related things over the past five years in relation to, I guess, reported um, outbreaks makes sense. I mean, yeah, right. Wow. Now. There's a sixty nine percent sensitivity to these outbreaks, and it, the wow. study also noted that eighty three percent of the candidates with outbreaks started earlier than. Okay. Reported. Okay. 83% of candidate outbreaks started earlier than the reported outbreaks, some by as much as 12 weeks earlier. Yeah. Because people trust Google more than they trust their doctor. WebMD. Dr. MD, Whatever yeah. it's called. <laughs> I mean, why? why Google doctor. Time? People like that stuff. Yeah. Anyways, kind of an interesting thing I saw the other days on, on ODs on Facebook. I thought I'd bring it up. Mm. Since we are ODs and waste time on Facebook, right? So um, one of the members at Rebecca Williams Rodenbaugh, she asked the masses, how do you guys handle people wanting to pop in to get contact lens trials? As in like, I ripped my lens and can I come get a new one? She was saying that she always does a $20 dispense fee to discourage people to do this. And today she got an uh, email from a patient asking to do it, and she told them no. uh, Or I guess she told them about the dispense fee, sorry. And the patient was super upset about it and said she would not be coming back. What do you guys do with this? I mean, I always go out of my way to let a patient know that by – being our patient, they are entitled to trials when they need them and solution when they need them. And I drop samples when they need them. So, you know, I have to say in my, you know, five short years of practice here that I've not had people abuse it that I can really think of that really stick out to me. Um, I do have, you know, my staff, 
I think my staff gets more pissed off about it than I do. They're like, you know, this person didn't buy lenses and, you know, they're a, a week away from, you know, their, their next year exam. And I think they had the same set from last year and now they want a, a, a sample and they've done this to another doctor in our practice before. And, you know, I think they're more, you know, protective of it than I am. And I think, you know, some part of me has become jaded because I know that the, you know, of course, there's the health aspect, but I know that the the benefit is in the exam, and I know I want the patient to keep coming back for their care and feel comfortable to come to us. But I know that there's a fine line, so we don't charge is my short answer. But I guess we don't charge either usually, and to the, for the most part, I feel the same. Like I would rather just give them a new pair of lenses and them be generally healthy than them stretch out one for multiple months, right. but. I've started working to we've had a couple of people like leaving or whatever, moving around in the business and I've started helping with ordering trial lenses. Oh yeah. That's it's true. a nightmare. It's yeah. literally a nightmare. Yeah. I mean, we clearly have a bad system, so that's a whole nother discussion and figuring out how to do this well because we carry like essentially every lens you could want. Yeah. Yeah. And so to keep those stocked is really a challenge. Every week we go through it, which might not even be enough, honestly, because, you know. But do you like save tabs or like how you just go through and look at empty spots? That's a good point. No, they go through and look at empty spots. Yeah, That's what they we do. save tabs. But again, it's just like, how do you do this the right way? That's a good idea. Um, yes. Did that. Can we just keep the tabs and you know what to order? Yeah. But anyways, a um, couple ideas that I thought were actually really appropriate. Um uh, Pete Taylor said, there's a cost to doing business. You're not keeping your do- doors open and staff paid, not to mention paying yourself, if you don't charge fees for services you offer. Um, another doctor said that they train all their staff to say that trials are for doctor fitting purposes only. Hmm. During unusual circumstances, um, we can look and do it, but otherwise, charging is appropriate. Um, you have to pay the staff to stop what they're doing, what they're supposed to be doing, deal with the patient's problems, and there's a fee for that. Also, you have to review the chart. That's There's a fee for that as well. Um, mm. uh, Anil Jessup had a really nice idea, though. He said buying lenses from them includes a quote-unquote warranty, which covers yeah. situations like this, which I do agree. Like, patients, yeah. things happen to your lenses. And especially if any lenses are defective, I will definitely replace them. Absolutely. But, um, yeah. Another know, another I, place says at, at the front desk they have this sign that says contact lens trials are only given at annual contact lens exams. Yeah, it's it's a tough one. And I, I just think, you know, oh man, we're getting so close, unfortunately, to the, you know, commoditization of contact lenses in that you know, they're losing their value. They're losing their individuality. The prescription's value is is diminished. And as a result of that, you know, I think that, you know, folks just think they can, you know, have any lens and, and that's what it should be. And I don't know, I just try to keep the patient in, in the doors as much as I can. And I think charging a fee is still somewhat even though we have a sample here of patient of doctors that say that they do this i would venture to guess that the large majority don't and that's sometimes the hard thing is that you know by taking a stance you really stand out in a negative way um you might say that's a good thing but you know you're gonna lose that patient you might say well 
that's a good thing too. You don't need a patient like that. And I've seen a lot of posts on Facebook say stuff like that. So I I don't know, but I it's not really been a problem for me. Do you, do you have a problem with that? I mean, do you, I mean, do you, not super regularly. Like, and to be honest, like if it's a patient that I like, I don't really care and I'm going to do it anyway. And a lot of the doctors said that as well. Like if it's a loyal patient, they're going to do it anyway. But and what's that $20 going to get you? Like No, nothing exactly. But I do think that honestly, most of the time if I just don't want to give someone a trial, I just tell them we don't have it in stock. <laughs> what are they going to do? Like check my check my lie? You know, <laughs> there's nothing they can do about that. Sorry. So, just say I'm really sorry we don't have it in stock, but I could order yeah. you a box of 30. <laughs> yeah 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 that's yeah exactly if they oh. if they should really be purchasing it you know that's yeah it is it's a tough situation because you know they're gonna just wear it until you know it disintegrates in their eyes in yeah some cases so. only so much you can do yeah well in honor of national cataract month we thought it'd be a little fun to talk about cadillacs but just a little bit fun upgrading cadillacs yeah trading could you ever in. see yourself in a cadillac of course, why not? Is is that like a dream car? Do you no. think? No, like, is it? it probably no. is your dream car. Didn't you just get one? <laughs> I did, but that, not a Cadillac. I did look at them, <laughs> yeah. but they were like ludicrous. Holy uh, Escalade, like... <laughs> a brand new Escalade. Like, not, and I wasn't gonna get an Escalade. I was just they were right next to the other car I was looking at. So, <laughs> yeah. so I looked at it. Of course, you know, it was a brand new Escalade, not like the big long one, but the ninety one thousand dollars. Did you ask for spinning rims? That was just like the regular rims. <laughs> yeah. It was the regular old rims. 91K. That's a pretty significant. Seems like a bargain. You know, I guess. Anyway, I could, I could see myself driving one someday, but I, I don't know. It's, it's, uh, I think if I, my like choice, it would be probably, if I had my choice, my, like, my dream car would have always been like a 7 Series BMW. Nice big long. Um, All right. Yeah, like it. that's I'm always not, been I don't one judge I've you. looked forward to. Not a Cadillac. But anyway, well, we have a lot of patience with Cadillacs because they're old. <laughs> right. I think maybe as a prereq, you've got to lose all your top hair to be able to drive it. I'm working on I'm it. Just <laughs> <laughs> I'm working on it. Getting there. Anyway, so Cadillacs. I thought it might be fun for everyone to hear some fun facts about Cadillacs. Yeah, let's see. We've all heard that it is the most frequently performed surgical procedure in humans. Huh. But that is backed now. I'm just so you know that. It is stated. That, it is true. A fact. It's a fact. You didn't just make that up. From the internet, I learned it. Main uh, cause internet. of blindness worldwide. Most of us heard that before as well. Um, but cataract surgery is kind of considered maybe one of the most successful treatments in all of medicine. Um, and I say that because before we got to where we are now, what we used to do to help this um, it's kind of almost like barbaric when you read about it. So let me tell you a little about the history. The first effective, quote unquote, removal of cataracts was around 800 BC by an Indian physician. Um, his name was Dr. Shushruta. Shushruta. Shush. Shushdiam. Anyways. <laughs> Shushamhida. That was the name of it. Um, and essentially what he did was... Um, Kind of like couching, but basically they described pushing a needle through the clouded lens into the eye. Once the lens became dislocated, it would drop into the vitreous and occasionally help the blinded person obtain some limited vision. Um, so, yeah, couching, it was also used through Egypt and China afterwards. 
Um, it was only performed performed when the patient's lenses were extremely hard, heavy, and almost entirely opaque. Uh, <laughs> have you? I mean, I've seen some of these opaque cataracts. Aren't they crazy? Oh, yeah. Cray. Soup's gray. So anyway, I guess the option of total blindness versus like visual blindness, it was a good alternative. Then, so I said 800 BC, right? That's like old. Now, first time it was actually refined, 1967. So they were couching until then? Seriously? I guess so. No. Well, I mean, there was another like kind of option, but basically FACO was involved in <laughs> it was invented in 1967. I should right, say our right. version. They did extra okay, capsular. Sorry, sorry. Uh, yes. Extra take that back. Before that. Um We're going to have all this hate mail. They're like I know. Oh, correct us. Sorry, guys. Sorry. So, yeah. the technique it's still used today, our our modern technique, I should say, 1967. Yeah. It uses ultrasound technology allowing the incision to be very small, actually less than 3 millimeters. Um, but pretty cool story. So as Jimmy just mentioned, they had extra cap. They had they had um, a lot of uh, older patients. I have a 97-year-old that's a, a fake kick in both eyes um, just because that's what they would do as well as an option. But um, do you know how they first decided to do intraocular lens implants? I have no idea. No idea. Okay. So Sir Harold Ridley... A British ophthalmologist in 1949. So he was actually working with a medical student, and this was after World War II, okay? And the medical student asked Dr. Ridley, why don't we replace this cataractus lenses with a clear lens? And that got him thinking, like, huh, like that sounds like a stupid question, but I don't know, why don't we? And they realized that the wounded World War II soldiers... The pilots, in particular, tolerated pieces of plastic from the shattered airplane windshields in their anterior chamber. Mm. This encouraged him to implant an IOL made entirely of PMMA, which is like glass, basically, like acrylic glass, right? At the time, he was a pro, like, he had very little support, okay? To be fair, there was considerable considerable amount of uh, post-op complications, such as glaucoma, sure. uveitis, and he had some dislocated lenses. But all the good stuff that that medical student being curious led to the like starting of IOL implants. See that? No dumb questions or thoughts. <laughs> right. Tell your tell your patients that. Yeah. Seriously. Um, then in 1992. We started doing astigmatic IOL, so toric IOLs developed. Mm. And um, obviously now we've had more and more updates in regards to trying to get multifocal or focusing lenses. Um, but that's kind of where the concepts, so how they kind of came about. Interesting. Cataracts are, I think, you know, it's got to be one of the most common things that we talk about in our daily, you know, Oh, yeah. Routine. What's your, like, go-to explanation for a patient? Like, all right, you know, you're, like, talking yourself into the fact that you're going to have to, like, give it your best, you know, cat- cataract talk, you know? I'll tell you. What? How do so, you do it? What do you say? It always comes up when they're talking about either glare or their vision's not as good. But I'll say, right. behind the colored part of your eye, you have a little lens inside your eye. Helps your eye focus light. Okay. That little lens is a clear window that you see through. To only help you see but because of mostly uv light 
that clear window becomes foggy, and that's what a cataract is. Huh. Boom. Mic drop. Well, what can I do to, like, turn that around? Cataract surgery. <laughs> and eye drops. Everybody wants, I'm like, a pill or a No, I usually or, say like... UV, UV protection slows down. Um, there is a procedure we can do to actually replace that lens, but otherwise we wait until it's affecting your day-to-day. What about you? Yeah, I, I think it's a very similar uh, explanation. I always like to use the M&M analogy. I don't know why. I, I think I just... I just think that it's cool to have like a conception of what it is that I mean by a lens. So I always just say, yeah, just like you, behind the color part of your eye where the dark hole in the middle is, that's your pupil, right there is a lens. That lens is the same size and shape as an M&M in real life. It's suspended in air inside your eye, uh, connected by little fibers to a muscle, and that muscle flexes to allow you to focus when you're young, when you turn into your 40s, it stops doing that and it hardens and gets cloudy. It goes cloudy, then it gets yellow, then it gets brown and starts to affect your vision. And that's what we call a cataract formation. And so eventually what we have to do is cut a little hole in the front side of the M&M, take that hole off, that little window, and then we remove all the chocolate. We keep the, the candy <laughs> coating in there and, and we put a new lens in there and that ch- that, that chocolate is is gone and the new lens is clear that's all i'd be the whole time and you could see again yeah (laughs) i always over explain everything it probably confuses the s-h-a-i-t out of them um but i don't know to me that's just what i go with s-h-i-a-t yeah (laughs) we have like these little boards in our room too like a little electronic board so i could often like pull that cataract picture up and show them that i think it is helpful to see it visually it makes people understand do you know what outcomes yeah. are? If patients say, like, what are my outcomes? How how likely am I going to see without glasses? Are you asking me? Yeah. It's a tough, you know, it's tough. And and um, I try not to, <laughs> I try not to give them a number. But um, I just say, you know, I think it's best to have the expectation that you're going to see much better after cataract surgery. And our, our goal is to get you seeing brighter and sharper and clearer. You may need some glasses afterwards. Um, those glasses may be to help you see a little bit better far away and um, most definitely up close. If you are very motivated to see without glasses, we can probably get you very close to that. If you're motivated to be without glasses, I can guarantee with a high degree of certainty that you are going to be without glasses for approximately 90% of your activities. Unfortunately, with surgery, there is no guarantees and every surgery carries risk. We'll review all of those things with you as we get closer to the surgery. So I try to give them, you know, the options basically, you know, so I see. I like that. Yeah. So a study actually came out to say that this is a retrospective study. I'll link it. But it said that over 90 percent of cataract surgery refractive outcomes can be within one diopter of your predicted outcome. Yeah, it's a pretty darn good number. It's an easy surgery. I didn't make it do it. I feel like I could do it. Over 70% can be within 0.5 diopters of the predicted outcome. That's pretty darn good. Three-fourths are half a diopter away of what they wanted. Uh This is, of course, when the surgeon tailors the lens calculations prior to the outcome data. Okay. So 
Anyways, just to go over a couple risk factors, because obviously patients are always a little nervous, right? I mean, rightfully so. It's a surgery. So what are some of the risk factors you tell your patients about? Well, I always say that you're going to be a little blurry right afterwards. There may be some discomfort or even pain. It's possible, but very unlikely. Um, There is, of course, a very small risk of infection, Yep. That is possible that you, you should be aware of. And if you're taking your drops as uh, directed and following up appropriately, that's something that we can probably take care of. So, um, you know, that's obviously something to, to be aware of. So as um, a number for that, endophthalmitis yeah. risk is one in a thousand. The rate was actually 0.128% chance. But have you ever risk, seen on? The risk is higher with patients that have had a posterior capsular rupture. That's interesting. I didn't know yeah. that. I wonder why that is, I guess. Um, I asked. Good question. So okay. the reason is because the anterior chamber, when it is encapsulated, there's a pretty good chance. I mean, like when you're opening the eye and going in with your probe, the chance of getting a little bacteria in there is is higher. I mean, it's pretty high. It probably happens. But right. they do a lot to the anterior chamber, including oftentimes a lot of my doctors will put um, a little antibiotic into the anterior chamber afterwards. Okay, yeah. But once you rupture visco. that, once you rupture that posterior capsule, things don't move around the same or get cleaned it's like the up wild the same. Less back there. Exactly, something gets back there, and then all bets are off. It's hard You're for after. the eye to clear that out, oh. or it really doesn't as much. So oh. anyway, endophthalmitis, low risk, but very. Very serious when it does happen. I have seen that. And it actually can happen many months after, which is really scary. I've seen two now in my career. And one, uh, the eye went thysical. Um, Very bad, ugly, ugly situation. The guy uh, then ended up getting um, AMD in his other eye. And um, God, God, why am I? I'm drawing a blank. Um where you see people and see things. Oh, Charles Benet. My he got favorite. Charles Benet and drove his wife bonkers with it. I mean, they would come in and you know, it was just Benet a sad too. situation because he was always seeing like a little girl at the end of the bed and driving the wife nuts. Oh, and the wife would come in and it was it was nuts. And anyway, he it was tough because he really he really went downhill after that. Yeah. And um it's a shame. Just it kind of goes to show, you know, like the the importance the vision has not only on our ability to function, but also our our mental well being. Sure. And it always was in the back of my mind, like what caused this guy? Because it seemed like he had dementia then, you know. Yeah. So it was it dementia or was he just severely depressed? And then the other case was just recently actually, and he rebounded really well actually. You oh, know, good. We, we found out very early you know, that it happened. It was, it was probably two, three weeks after the surgery came back, very fibrotic anterior chamber reaction. Um, I sent him immediately to the retina, our retina specialist and, um, he did an anterior chamber tap and it was a staph species. So it was positive for, so he did an intern, you know, um, an injection of, I believe it was fortified vancomycin or tobramycin. I forget which one, but it was, it's a good story because I was kind of like, oh shit, you know, this guy's gonna end up with you know a thysical eye, and you yep, know he can definitely happen. He happens to be our um, uh, marketing 
agent for the local newspaper oh, and gosh. guys had bad history. And actually, now that you mentioned this posterior capsular rupture, he actually had retinal detachment surgery in that eye. So I wonder mm-hmm. if that is a disrupted barrier already because of that. Because he's had a vitrectomy. So maybe. Yeah. Well, retinal detachment. I'm glad you brought that up. Yeah. Um, With retinal detachment for a normal surgery, it's like kind of one in 100 chance of a retinal detachment. No surgery, kind of like one in a thousand chance or 2,000 chance of getting a retinal detachment. So less likely than an endophthalmitis. No, no, no. Uh, no, more one likely. In, no, one, You're more, more likely, likely to get a retinal detachment. One in a hundred people it. get retinal detachment. If uh, you don't have surgery, like some people say, like, what's my risk if I just don't have surgery compared to having surgery for retinal detachment? Yeah. Like one in 2,000 people get a retinal detachment. That's the general number that uh, if you have uh, lower risk factors, right? I mean, obviously a high myopa is different. Right. Um, depending on what type of, um, if you're a high myope though, more like what one in one in 20 it yeah it's much higher the my um my my doctor said that it's five times harder (laughs) whatever that means (laughs) that's a a statistical analysis thanks doc i said five times harder five times harder but it kind of makes sense because when somebody has, especially a high myope, they have a much longer eye, so they have a much deeper interior chamber. Yeah. So it's much like your angle to get down into doing the cataract surgery is much steeper. So it's a lot harder to not be aggressive or move things around and break up that cataract. Uh, posterior capsule rupture, which is one of the most common post-op complications associated with cataract surgery. This um, happens in about 2% of patients. And um, this often leads to vitreous loss, the need for a vitrectomy, um, a placement of the lens in a different spot, um, including the anterior chamber or the ciliary sulcus. And sometimes you'll need additional um, surgical interventions. Hmm. Yeah, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's something that, you know, it's it's interesting. Our I've I've spoken to some early uh, ophthalmology residents, you know, and and talking to them about cataract surgery and how difficult it it is, you know, in the beginning to kind of get it down, and and then you look at some more seasoned cataract surgeons and how easy it is and how second nature it has become and how easy it looks, you know, definitely is a difficult procedure. And uh, a high, you know, um, learn a steep learning curve. And I think you just, you know, you think about the risk of these things. We see it all the time as secondary, you know, complications that we're following or monitoring or watching. But the bottom line is, if you're doing cataract surgeries, you're going to have retinal detachments. You're going to have endophthalmias. You're going to have capsular ruptures. These are just normal things, right? I mean, exactly. the more you do the more you're going to likely see these things. It doesn't matter how good you are, right? right. I mean, you're going to run into these things. And I don't think, you know, it's something that people like to talk about, but you're going to have these things. These are things, and it just goes with the territory, right? Like you're doing these surgeries, you're going to have these possible things. I mean, I'm sure every surgeon out there has stories of people that have gone blind because of them doing, you know, pretty much the same thing every time, but 
True. Some bacteria got in there and this is what happened, you know? Exactly. Well, funny you say that. Odds of adverse effects were 70% lower among surgeons who performed 501 to 1,000 surgeries per year and 86% lower among surgeons who perform greater than 1,000 surgeries a year huh. relative to people who do less than 250 cases a year. So there is something to, you know, when you hear patients be like, oh, I want to know, like, how many surgeries they've done. Like, are, yeah. they, are they super busy? And then it's so funny, though, because the side, the, the other thing that people will say, like, because our, our surgeon who does cataract surgeries, you know, for our practice with us is... Um, we think busy. He thinks yeah. he's busy. Um, but he only does surgery once a week. And, um, you know, he does like 20 to 30 cases that day. So he's, it's a busy day. But people, you know, are like, oh, he's, it's like they're herding you in like cattle, you know, like it's just such a. No, I think that's wrong because most surgeons only have surgical days once or twice a week at most. That's pretty common. That's totally right? common. All and my so doctors. You have to, yeah. you have to pack them in, yeah, right? I mean, absolutely. you're going to use your resources, your overhead. Exactly. You when you have day. a surgical day, you have you have to pay for OR time. You that's have crazy. to pay for anesthesiologists. anesthesiologists. You have to yeah. pay for your nurses. You have to pay for your scrub tech. It's a big expense. Oh yeah, all that people yeah. running around and they're picking their nose and. Exactly. Out their wedgies. Exactly. Um, what? Um, how many would would a surgeon do in your office? Is that pretty average? You think twenty, um, thirty, somewhere in that I think probably ballpark? my doctors that use um, the uh, laser when they do uh, femtosecond like a or laser lensette. Oh right. Okay. They probably do more than some of my older docs that don't. But right. my older docs who don't usually do more complicated cataracts. You know, they're just uh, doing weird cases, and so they. Right kind of just have that old skill riding that they still can ride off of. Mm. Um, one other risk factor I should mention that should be something that any of your patients that you are referring for cataract surgery, you should put in the note is if they are using um, an alpha antagonist. So a tamsulosin. Mm. This is associated to intraoperative floppy iris syndrome. The old floppy. Floppy iris. Floppy iris. It's a big deal, and actually, it has a hundred and thirty-three percent increase in risk for adverse events. Big deal. What's the thing that they'll put in there to open the iris up out there a right something now? Something ring. Something. It's a blah blah ring, you dummy. Yeah, it's a. Sorry, whatever it's people. called. <laughs> it's one of those rings. I don't know. Hopefully, a diamond one. Yeah. <laughs> <Just kidding. laughs> yeah. Uh, Anyways, anywho, so. We obviously we knew that we were prepping for this talk, and Jimmy, I put Jimmy on posting a message on face Odie's on Facebook because yeah. I'm not I'm not a uh, like mentally prepared enough to get like attacked via oh, the please. Facebook the wolf, wolf the wolfing. I'm not I don't like to be wolfed. Yeah. So so we said, uh, what questions would you like to ask, or have you already asked your local OMD about cataract surgery? So learning about their style of surgery, how prep they like their patients to become, uh, how much time in between each eye, how long do you want patients to be out of contact lenses. It's funny because I think you get used to working with your surgeon, if you will, and you sort of just start to think that that's the only way to do it. And you probably realize that 
that is obviously very far from the truth, working with multiple surgeons in your own practice. And I'd love to hear, you know, how different they are, but we did get some responses, some really good ones. And, uh, so one of them said all good questions, uh, they'd recommend trying to find out about their results and philosophy on premium IOLs. That would be the first in mind. And, and I think that's probably a very good question because much like we all have maybe feelings about certain drops for dry eye or uh, treatments for dry eye or treatments for glaucoma or eyeglass lenses or contact lenses that we like, I know there are surgeons that only use certain lenses, right? In Absolutely. fact, I would say most of them have a favorite lens that they only use, and they just believe that it is just hands and feet over any other lens. It's, I've had the opportunity to, to lecture to, to ophthalmologists uh, uh, on certain things, and um, a lot of times multifocal IOLs comes up and they'll pick my brain about you know, what we use and what we, uh, what we recommend. And it's so funny how some could be like, Oh, that's just absolute garbage. It's terrible. And it's just the worst. And it's just like, to to be honest, I don't really know that much about them. I, I, maybe that's, you know what I think is interesting unfair when I listen to my ophthalmologist talk, why in the world has, for instance, Alcon makes implants and a lot of docs, at least in my practice, really enjoy the Alcon um, IOL implant. But why has an Alcon paired their technology they use in their cataract multifocal IOL and put it in a contact? Maybe they did. I don't know. That seems like something they should work toward. I mean, it's hard to now get good vision out of a multifocal contact if you have a cataract. But think about if you just knew that you liked how that saw then you could easily put that lens in. I I would I challenge somebody to come on our podcast and talk to us a little bit about the true differences between multifocal IOLs and multifocal contact lenses cuz in my mind they're pretty much the same damn thing. I mean, the focal di- like where it is on the eye could be a little different. Mm-hmm. I don't. I don't really know. I'm sure there's some optician or optical genius that knows the answer to this. But right. Regardless. So uh, another person put consideration for high myopes, like above minus nine diopters, with or without pass retinal detachment, laser assisted only. Uh, so I thought that was a good question. And I, I how do you handle the laser question? That, that that I think is a really good point. That this this uh, poster brought up and and because i know that when i refer somebody for cataract surgery they're going to get the pitch yep the pitch is laser and the pitch is multifocal iol slash uh, toric iol so i like to sort of pre you know educate some patients i will outright say i don't think you need that you're going to be educated about it and if you were my mom i'd say get this and and so that's I don't know if that's the right or wrong thing to do in, in some cases, but ultimately they're my patients are coming back to me and I want them to be happy. And I know if they're sold something that they don't need and they have an expectation they're going to see, you know, through things and they come back and they're complaining about glare and ultimately they aren't seeing through things, then they're going to be pissed. So I try to make sure that I kind of not to say that my cataract surgeon is, you know, greedy or not moral or ethical. Cause I'm not saying that I'm just saying, I want to have my input heard 
first. <laughs> well, I think so. I was speaking. So I should say for a second, we polled all these people, including Odie's on Facebook. I asked a bunch of my colleagues. Um, and then I actually went to my group practice. We have six surgeons that do cataract surgery. And I kind of asked them all these questions. I have a range from one year out of school to 70 years old, still performing cataract surgery regularly and asked them all these questions and got kind of a nice range of answers. And my, honestly, my favorite doctor in my practice, my like mentor, uh, I think he's such a cool person. His name is Dr. Brian McKillop. He's an ophthalmologist and he's a cornea specialist, but he now focuses a lot of his time and effort on complicated cataract procedures. And it was really cool talking to him, actually, because he was talking about how he wishes he still could figure out a way to if someone comes in for a consult for a cataract surgery, it's kind of like you've got to make the decision within a one to two appointments what you want your vision to be like. And if you've never heard any of this before, it's a big deal to have to try and tell someone all these things because it's overwhelming. And right. so he's like, I sometimes feel guilty that I can't really educate them on all these things and that they don't come in prepared because I don't have that much time to be the one to teach someone what they'd really want because they may say something. But when I hear what they're saying, they don't really want that either. And right. so there is a certain amount of like knowing how to teach someone or like giving resources for people so they can make the right decision. But it is, it is a big deal. Um, you could make adjustments, but you have a short window and a lot of doctors don't like making adjustments. So. Right. Well, let's just let me just go over some of the results I got. So first talking about premium IOLs. Of most of the doctors, at least in my practice, a lot of them are a little more traditional. So most of them don't use it. They just pension. don't even offer it. No. Well, so they'll talk about it, but most of them don't like to use them. And it's funny, as I heard them and I was asking them about some of the different brands that I've heard, um, a lot of them will actually use the Symphony lens, which is a newer like um, extended range contact, they call it. It's not yep. exactly a multifocal, but anyways, a lot of them have been using that more. But still, yeah. it's funny. It's like, you know, when any of us do something, whether it's a treatment or let's say you try a Procara one time and the patient has a bad experience, then you just never want to do it again. You're like, oh, that's terrible. It doesn't work because you had such a bad recourse from you doing a recoil from you dealing with something in a certain right. way. Or like right. you tried a certain contact lens and a patient hated it. Whatever right. it might be, they act the same, but it kind of is more permanent, right? Like once they have bad experience once or twice, it's like... Yeah. Not doing that anymore. That was a bad call. Right. And so right. it has to really be a good setup for them to like want to start doing it more or a really good situation for them to want to do something different because um, it's like they get superstitious about it a little bit. But anyway, most of my doctors don't like using it um, unless it's the symphony lens just because it is lesser of that glary aberration. And most patients, they say, still end up needing glasses more regularly. How about your doctor's? As far as what? The premium IOLs. I should mention, sorry, before I finish saying that, they all use Toric IOLs. If we're going to put premium and Toric together. Um, but multifocal, really just a symphony lens. Yeah, that that's he's a, he's a technist guy. So symphony is definitely the multifocal of choice. And I think, <laughs> I mean, I, I don't see him, you know, 
turning somebody away from a multifocal. You know, somebody if somebody has a desire to be glasses free, you know, it's definitely something he'll work to do. Um, if that involves doing a multifocal, AK, LASIK, PRK, like multiple surgeries to get them there, you know, we'll we'll lay that out in the beginning and let them know. Um, and so I just, I really just try my best to set the correct expectations if I know that's going on, you know? Um, so yeah, I mean, we, we do a, a, I would say a fair bit of multifocals. Um, I think it, it, it just, it works in those that are motivated and have the right expectations. So definitely does your doctor use mostly, or how often does he use laser to assist his surgery? I don't know what the exact percentage is right now, but I, I'd say it's probably 50%. Yeah. Yeah. I think I think when I tell my patients about cataract surgery, I think about what I would want or what I would guide my parents in doing. And I think laser-assisted surgery is the most innovative way to do the procedure. So I I usually recommend it for my patients. It's so hard. You know, I think when patients are often at this point in life, you know, they're like, is it covered by my insurance? You know, it's always like the first question. And, you know, I think it's, it's, you know, to have options for the surgery, it just gets so confusing, you know? And and I think like, if it was me, like I'd, I'd automatically assume that that was best, right? Like if it's more expensive, it must be better. I'm going to do it right. Like, and like, I think you and I had this conversation before, like you were talking about a dermatologist, like, do you have nice products? Like, do you have something better? Is there something you'd recommend? Like, right. I want to treat myself good. I want to make sure I'm doing the best for me. And they didn't even give you like a good explanation. Right. Exactly. Um, it's like, and in, in, in when I've done healthcare stuff so far in my life here, like with teeth or whatever, like I've, I've felt proud of the fact that I can afford it and I'm going to do it and I'm going to take care of it. And I think in this case, I would say, yeah, give me the laser, you know, like whatever's the best I would do it. But I, I, do you ever feel like, well, why isn't it covered by insurance? Like, because if it was so much better, why isn't it like, and I know you can make that, uh, that argument for like lip flow and things like that. You know, not everything that should be done is covered by insurance, but well, because realistically, I think once it gets covered by insurance, one, doctors are going to get paid less. Two, mm. it's not a standard of care for doctors to have a laser and they're expensive. Right. And three, surgical outcomes are good without the laser. And that's it's just my better point. with the laser. Yeah. And healing time yeah. is better and accuracy so those are the is things, better. Right? Is that is that what your ophthalmologist or you communicate? Healing times are better yeah. and they surgical can outcomes perfectly, are better. They can sh- like they, they can mark perfectly where to put the the I- toric IOL implants. They can do relaxing sutures, etc. Yeah. That's what I understand. Anyways, interesting question that I asked them as well that some some of my colleagues asked were, one, what's the average time between two eyes and why? And most of them, just about all of them, said their preference is one month between two surgeries. Really? Yeah. I'm surprised about Um, that. Two weeks, but one month would be ideal if they could have it their way. Now, why? And I'll tell you why. Because usually uh, CME develops within three to four weeks of surgery. And really? so if it's going to develop, that's when it will be. 
And then um, also, is there going to be like if they're going to be off on their calculations, they'll find out around then, too. And so obviously there are times where it's shorter than that, um, especially if it's in like patients are coming from far or whatever it might be. But if they had it their way, they'd like it to be one month. Just about all of them said if they could, they'd want it that. Okay. We usually we do it as soon as we can a week to two weeks. Yeah, I mean, it obviously for visual vision's sake that's ideal. Yeah, but anyway, that's interesting. Okay. Um, how long do you want patients to be out of contacts? Another question. What do you guys say? You know, they say they say two weeks and a week to two weeks before their evaluation for their measurements. Um. Honestly, it's usually not that big of a deal. Um, it's not something I have to tell patients all that often. I think usually at that point, most of them aren't wearing them, to be honest. Sure. Um, so it's it's not something that we run into all that often. How about but that is gas permeable lenses? Yeah, I can't think. <laughs> we really just haven't run into that that all that much. GP lenses? For cataract surgery, I, usually... I have one right now, actually, and it's a big headache because she doesn't want to be out of them. She's like a minus nine, minus ten. She's like a super high prescription. She's had the same lenses for five plus years, um, and she's just dreading getting out of them. But she's got really bad PSC. She's diabetic, yeah, and uh, she's got to be out of them. Yeah, and um, so so I spoke to to our surgeon. And I told her that, you know, we'd want her to be at least out of them for two weeks. And he actually said he'd like it a month. Yeah. Um, and so, so I, don't, I don't know. What do you Literature do? shows that cat or GP lenses, you should be out longer. But yeah. a lot of my docs said for a soft lens, a week or two is fine. Yeah. Um, yeah. They're going to repeat scans. Um, right before. Right before just to ensure that it's right. the same. And usually right. it is. But a GP lens, right. they usually say at least two peaks. Two, two peaks, two weeks repeat case. If it's the same, then they'll do it. Otherwise, you keep going on like one to three week intervals until the case remain, remain the same. Stable. Yep. Yeah, that makes sense. Um. So, yeah, I mean, actually, I have a pretty interesting case. Uh, two now, exact same story. GP lens wearers that have toric, Jeep, like, like pretty big touristy on their cornea. Mm. And they opted to get toric implants. And now they are super dissatisfied with their vision. Why? Mm. They don't really have a regular corneas per se, but you know a GP lens gives you great vision. Yeah. What's the trouble now? They have twenty twenty five vision, but a GP yep. lens is... At twenty twenty. Well, no, because now, because of the torque implant, I can't fit with the normal GP lens. <sighs> because now, they with the normal GP lens, they've got double the toricity, if that makes sense. Yeah, it does. So it's a big deal figuring that out. Ugh. Yeah. So gross. It's gross. Um, another question the patients or patients <laughs> colleagues ask is how do you determine the ad power for a monovision at IOL placement? What's your average? How do you figure out the If someone wants monovision IOLs, how do you do it? How do you figure out what their ad power is? Good question. I have no idea. So obviously if any doctors previously did monovision or if any patients previously did monovision, that's easy. You mimic that power. The contacts. Sorry. Yeah. 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 You mimic that in their implants. Right. 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 The difference you're saying. Exactly. 
a lot of the docs will talk, especially for patients that are slightly myopic or even moderately myopic, they'll talk about um, at least trying it. Either they'll give them a demo to try it at home. In contacts before they do the surgery. Or average IOL power for a monovision for most of the docs I asked was around one and a quarter to one and a half. So that was more. Their, no, like power? that was the plus power. Ah, yeah. I see. Okay, interesting. Yeah. Huh. I know in it seems kind of near eye. In the near eye, near eye, exactly. Yeah. Interesting. Um, Is that something they do often? Yeah, yeah. It seems okay. like a lot of them do at least a little bit. Um, seems like a safer choice, right? Well, especially for a myopic patient. For a hyperopic patient, different. But a myopic patient. Seemed like that was a standard. Do they charge a little more for that? I don't think they did. And that's a good question. Yeah. Hmm. Um, one last thing I'll mention is post-LASIK cataract surgery. Hmm. So obviously this is more challenging. Um, there are calculators for estimating cataract surgery for post-LASIK if they don't have information. But that tends to be the air on the hyperopic side, which is always unfortunate. Um, also, of course, their cornea is flatter. Um, but most of the docs that I said, especially the ones that I talked to that are more likely to do this, and most of my older docs are more likely to do this, said that they'll tell every patient there's a 25% chance that you're going to need a second surgery. He oh, said, yeah, in reality, wow. it's more like probably 10%, but I like to just yeah. warn all my patients there's a good chance that you're not going to get a good vision right away because all their friends get good vision right away and they, uh, they just need the friends. It's <laughs> really screw it. The friends, Millie from down the road. Yeah. Elsie. Millie. Elsie's got great vision. She's way better than me. And she's happy. I'm not. She, and I am blind. I cannot see anything. <laughs> yeah. And I always say, wait a second. You're right. <laughs> Tell me more about that. Tell me more <laughs> yeah. about you can't see anything because I want to talk to you. You're concerning In me. a repeatable yeah. measurable way. Right. So we're going to use this terminology called 20 something. <laughs> and so if you can get Millie to come in, I'd be glad to compare your vision with right. Millie with the eye chart. I like that. <laughs> well, another thing interesting, post RK, right? We all know RK's crazy fluctuation. They say that they're not going to do anything post RK for 2 to 3 months after surgery. Cuz the cornea changes so much. And one of my docs said one time. If they had RK before. RK. He had a now patient. We're doing cataract. They had a cataract surgery, had RK. He had to come in and they were, they were a minus three power. And he was like, oh, shoot, I got to go in. So he goes in, changes it. Now it's it went to his original calculation. Now this patient's a plus six. <laughs> right. Wow. So, like, how much it can change is a lot. So, uh, right. much slower recovery time post pre refractive surgery. Yeah, there are, there are some goof, goofy things that can go on, huh? And so it definitely, there is a whole other world of eye care information out there that, you know, you may think you know everything about eyes, you know, as optometrists, we, we definitely have an, a, a keen understanding of, of what it is that we do. But certainly you have to respect our ophthalmological colleagues in cataract surgery because, yeah, a lot of the times it's run of the mill, super easy, but there's definitely some some things that, you know, it can be scary. Probably we don't know about. Let's just be very blunt, right? It seems so easy, but I'm I'm not that sad I don't do it. 
I'll say it that way. No, I don't. I, I don't have that uh, desire no to do cataract surgery. It's very un uh, impressive, and I think not it's pretty impressive. At all. I think it's kind of cool. It's not glamorous, though. I think it's kind of cool. Yeah. I think that covers it, though. What do you think? Oh yeah, we've beat those Cadillacs with a dead horse. That's right. <laughs> Well, I think that does it. Before we go, reach out to us for feedback, questions, stories, things you want us to talk about, either on our Instagram, Facebook, or call or text us, 920-350-8622. We never depart without saying thanks to Valley Contacts for their Numero Uno support, both for their amazing lenses they make and the great people they are to work with. And finally, be sure to tune in and listen to our next episode. But until then... Oh, our next episode and our one-year anniversary. Woo! It's going to be a party. Party. And an optometry's meeting, right? A couple weeks, optometry's meeting. See us there. But until then, try not to play.